Hey everybody, if you are listening to this, I want to welcome you and say thank you for checking into our refuge messages this year on being transformed. Before you listen to tonight's message on the reliability of the New Testament, I want to let you know that every week we have small groups, and during these small groups, they bring up questions that may have come up during the actual message or things that they felt weren't clear, maybe even objections. Uh, This specific night when we had small groups, three important questions came up. One was about the passage in John 7, 53 through 8, 11. One was about the variants that we found in the manuscripts, just wanting further explanation on why that isn't concerning. And the third one was in regards to how the New Testament actually compares to historical works. I want you to know that all of these questions have been answered thoroughly on Realm. So if you are a member at Cornerstone Church, you can simply go to Realm. If you're not a part of the Refuge group, you can shoot me an email. Or if you're not a part of Cornerstone Church and Realm, you can shoot me an email and I can send those responses to you. I wanted to put this blurb in before you listen to this message because I believe that the answer to those three questions that we had following up after the message are very important uh, to this specific topic. So if you want that access, you can email me at dave at cornerstonedover.org. Thank you. Tonight's objective is simply this question. Is the New Testament reliable? Can we have confidence that the New Testament is the actual word of God? Is it a reliable piece of history? What does the world say about it? What do other antiquity, writings of antiquity say about this? Uh, Again, we're not getting into the self-authenticating nature of Scripture yet. We have seen that the New Testament authors affirm the Old Testament. In fact, I've argued, and we'll do so again in about four weeks, uh, talk about how the reliability of the Old Testament can, in many ways, be brought down to the reliability of the New Testament because of how much the New Testament uses the Old Testament and affirms it as Scripture. We've also seen that the New Testament authors, as I've mentioned, claim to be speaking the very Word of God. And as Ephesians 3 says, the mystery of Christ is being revealed to the holy apostles and prophets. So there's much to be said there in the self-authenticating nature of Scripture. What does the Bible say about the Bible? What did Jesus say about the Bible? What did the apostles say about the Bible? But we have not yet come to that part of our study. So that is not tonight's objective still. Tonight, I want to answer the question, is the New Testament reliable? And I want to do so with three main points, just three points tonight, all right? I'm going to give them to you right now, and then we'll break them down one at a time. The three points, I want to show you that, number one, we have in the New Testament the most reliable work of antiquity in the world. The New Testament is the most reliable work of antiquity in the world. Secondly, I want to show you that the many numbers of copies of the New Testament that we have, the massive amount of manuscripts that we have, helps not hurts the reliability of the New Testament. And third and finally, we're going to define this word in case you don't understand what it is. Uh, Textual criticism has been able to identify and correct errors in the transmission of the New Testament. Those are our three points. We'll go over them again. One of the leading arguments... In fact, uh, the strongest argument, the most used argument by skeptics, people who do not believe the New Testament is actually reliable, they will say that we can have no confidence that what we have is anything like the original. 
You, they, they will say, you don't have the autographs. You may remember what the autographs are. What are autographs? Original copies. They will say, you don't have any original copies. What you have is copies of copies of copies. Therefore, you can have no confidence that this is the word of God. For example, take the gospel of Mark. It is believed that Mark, last week we discussed this, was written between 50 and 60 A.D. Now, the earliest manuscript uh, we, that we have of Mark comes from a document called P45. And the earliest manuscript, this P45, is dated back to 220 A.D. So the earliest manuscript of Mark that we have is 160 to 170 years after it was written. In fact, this wasn't even the first complete copy of Mark. It was just fragments of Mark. The first complete copy of the Gospel of Mark is actually dated in the 4th century. In other words, with the Gospel of Mark, what we have is a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. So skeptics will say, how can you have any confidence in a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy? It took a few hundred years to even have the full manuscript of Mark. How can you have confidence in that? P52, another document, is the oldest papyrus that we have of a gospel. Papyrus is ancient paper, essentially. It's what old manuscripts, old Greek handwriting was written on. So that's what papyrus is. P52, the oldest papyrus we have of a gospel, and it contains a mini fragment from the gospel of John. It's about the size of a credit card. In fact, uh, it's, it's double-sided to show that it's actually not a scroll. Scrolls are not double-sided. Codexes were, so it would be like the Bible of the day. So it was not an original either. It, this was a copy, right? It was found in the beginning of the second century. Well, if you remember, John, most believe, was written around 90 uh, A.D. 90, 95 A.D. So if it's believed somewhere between 125, give or take 25 years, P52 is found. That still is within 50 years of when John was actually written. So even here, we have at least a copy of a copy or a copy of the original. Probably a copy of a copy. When looking at these two examples, skeptics will now say and proclaim it is impossible to have any kind of reliability when it comes to the transmission of Scripture and the copying to that of the original. How can you claim to have the very reliable, infallible, inerrant word of God? In fact, it gets a little worse first. So if I'm shattering anybody's confidence in the New Testament, just hang with me. It is true that there are around 400,000 variants or textual errors found in the New Testament. In case you missed that, say 400,000. There are about 400,000 variants or textual errors found in the New Testament. This is true. And again, skeptics would be alarmed. It's astonishing because there are only around 180,000 words in the New Testament. How many thousand words? 180,000 words. So there's an average of over two textual variants and errors for every word in the New Testament. This seems alarming. Holy smokes, how did this happen? Is the New Testament actually reliable? Now some of you might be rethinking your entire childhood. I hope not. Today, here's what you need to know. We have around 5,700 Greek manuscripts. 
So here's what the 400,000 textual variants do not mean. It does not mean that if I open up my Bible right now, there's 400,000 errors in my copy of the New Testament. It means among the 5,700 Greek handwritten manuscripts, there has been found around 400,000 textual variants and errors between the copies. Okay? Now, 5,700 Greek manuscripts. Not all of these are even close to being full copies. Some are just fragments, small fragments, verses or chapters or portions of books. They are handwritten manuscripts. And it is true that 94% of these 5,700 Greek manuscripts are from the 9th century or later. Meaning 9th century or closer to us. To break it down one more way, of the 5,700 Greek handwritten manuscripts, how many handwritten? 5,700. I'm just keeping you awake with me. Of the 5,700 Greek handwritten manuscripts, according to James White, we have over 3 million handwritten pages of Scripture. New Testament. Without further explanation, this causes great concern, yes? We have copies of copies of copies. We don't have any originals. The earliest we date back is within 50 years. It's the Gospel of John, but it's the size of a credit card, right? We've got 400,000 textual variants. We have 5,700 copies that have that many errors or textual variants. How on earth can we look at the New Testament and say, this is the Word of God? Much less, how can we build an entire life on it? Much less, how can we say, Jesus, the one who is the Savior in this, is worth me leaving everything else and pursuing Him? If there's what seems to be this much contradiction and lack of reliability when it comes to the New Testament. Without further explanation, this causes great concern. Thankfully, we actually have a much deeper explanation tonight. What I have just shared with you would be what you would typically receive if you were to go to a debate on the New Testament, and you'd have somebody defending it and somebody against it, and if you have people who are intelligent, have studied, um, these, will think, these are things that they will bring up. They are correct things, but they are leaving out a whole lot. And so now I'm hoping we can now answer these things and you can have a reason for the hope that is within you and you can share it with your friends and skeptics when they want to engage in conversation with you. So let's start with the number of manuscripts we have and their age. When they come into existence, it is indeed true that of the 5,700 Greek manuscripts we have, that 94% of them came from the 9th century and later. But we do have 12 manuscripts. This is, this is going to be important. We have 12 manuscripts that are from within the first 100 years of the copies being written. All of them are fragments. They're not full books or letters. But they represent the majority of the New Testament books. And they actually cover four-tenths of the total New Testament book. So 40% of the New Testament can go back to manuscripts and copies found within 100 years of the original. We also have more than 120 manuscripts within the first 300 years during the patristic period. And so we're increasing with what we have. Now, lest you still think this is inadequate... Let's go ahead and compare this, these facts, the New Testament, to other works of antiquity. Are you ready for this? 
You can say this to your U.S. history class or your global history teacher or your neighbor who uh, doesn't want to teach the Bible as a historical thing in school. No other work of antiquity has earlier manuscripts than the New Testament. No other work of antiquity has closer manuscripts to the originals, has better reliability, has more witnesses to the original text than the New Testament. No other work of antiquity. The average for every single other work of antiquity in the world is to have a manuscript as early as 500 years after the original. So even with the Gospel of Mark, 160 to 170 years, it comes into existence after the original, that still beats by 330 to 340 the average of every other work of antiquity. Unbelievable. The average actually falls between 500 and 900 years after the original was written of other pieces of antiquity. No other piece of antiquity has even close to as many manuscripts or copies as the New Testament. The New Testament, this is a proven fact. And by the way, um, the leading, the leading skeptics and atheists today agree with this. Every debate I watched, book against it that I read, has affirmed this. The New Testament is the most well-documented piece of antiquity in the world. That's a proven fact. Take Plato, for example. Last week I said Pliny, and I meant to say Plato, so that's a correction. Plato, for example, there's only seven manuscripts of his writing. Only seven. And the earliest from the original, which we don't have either, by the way, is from 1,400 years later. So you've got Plato. Only seven manuscripts. The first copy, the earliest copy we have is from 1,400 years after. Is there any question of Plato in schools today, in the work of antiquity? Nobody's denying it. So if skeptics are going to dismiss the reliability of the New Testament, they need to be consistent across the board with works of antiquity. Indeed, if we cannot know that the New Testament is reliable, then we cannot say that we know what any work of antiquity said, or that any work is reliable. You must say to your skeptic friend, if you are going to reject the best, most well-authentic, reliable document in the history of the world, even more so than the Old Testament, you better be willing to rip up all of your history books. It beats all of them. All of them. Next. But what about the errors? Who cares if it's well-documented? It goes back earlier. What's up with all the errors? 400,000 errors? Well, it is true that there are 400,000 textual variants or errors found in the 5,700 copies we have of the New Testament handwritten in Greek. But here is the truth about those 400,000 variants. You ready? Say 99%. 99% of the 400,000 textual variants and errors are irrelevant. Now, how can we say that? Well, let's look at the type of errors that we are talking about. You see, when the New Testament letters were being spread in the first century, the originals, Paul sends his letter to Ephesus by the hands of Tychicus. When Tychicus and Onesimus bring the letter of Philemon and Colossians to Philemon and Colossae, they're handwriting them. Remember what Paul said in Colossians? 
Make sure after you read this, you send this off to Laodicea and read the letter from Laodicea as well. The letter of what? Remember? Laodicea would be what? Remember? Ephesians. All right, we're failing the quiz so far from last week, but that's all right. Ephesians. So these letters are being spread. Now here's what's happening. The process of copying the New Testament was not the same as the Masoretes, the Jews, the scribes, who would be counting to the middle letter, and all of a sudden if you got so many errors, you had to rip it up, start over, and destroy it. Remember, we talked about that in a small group, how laboring and unbelievable that would have been. That wasn't the case in the first century. We're beginning to have serious persecution of the church. People are being imprisoned. There is a dispersion happening among the Jews and those, the Gentiles, who are believing in faith. It is not necessarily a popular thing under the Roman Empire to be a Christian. Nor is it a popular thing to be having these letters or the Word of God. So as these letters are being passed around, they're coming to homes, churches in homes, and they're being copied, handwritten homes. So now they're keeping a copy and they're passing the original on. These are common people. These are not Jewish scribes. There's persecution happening. People who are followers of Christ would be beaten, imprisoned, or killed for just having copies of these texts. In fact, there came a point, we're going to talk next week in the patristic period, where actually you would have to turn in the word of God and it would be burned and destroyed. So no, no doubt we have lost originals. No doubt we've lost a lot of manuscripts. It's amazing, actually, that God preserved the word of God in the first century, in the patristic period, throughout all this persecution. So what you have is you have homes, pastors, people, handwriting copies. Well, what would happen, Austin, if you went home tonight and you decided that you were going to handwrite the entire gospel of Matthew? You didn't get tired at some point? You going to make any mistakes, you think, Austin? Probably Period might be out of place. You might forget a word. I could, I could have the majority of us right now read a passage, just four verses, and somebody would say the wrong word because they see it wrong, or they would skip a word, or they would skip a sentence. It happens all the time. You know it when people read the Word of God. You've seen it. Texts were being found. They were being burned by authorities. But copies were being made in order to preserve God's Word. So what happens is people are hungry for the Word of God. But mistakes are being made in the copies. Today, when we compare our 5,700 manuscripts, we see a number of errors. 400,000. But they are not relevant errors that contradict doctrine or the message of Christ or the makeup of the church or how Christians ought to live. They're things like, in fact, the majority are spelling errors. Remember, it's Greek. These 5,700 are just the Greek uh, copies. Ordinary men who have spelling issues. These are translation issues from the Greek to the Latin and others from the New Testament based on pronunciation of Greek words or word endings. In fact, 99% of the variants that are found in these 400,000 cannot, this is amazing, the 99% of these errors cannot be explained to someone who doesn't speak Greek. And they do not impact the translation into another language. They're Greek word issues. So our 400,000 variants and errors now looks a lot different. In fact, there are actually only 1,500 to 2,000 viable and meaningful variants found in the New Testament. 1,500 to 2,000. And they're based on scribal errors of sight or hearing. So let me now paint you a different picture. The New Testament 
has reliable manuscripts within the first century after the originals, which no other work of antiquity has. We have the most detailed and dependable work of antiquity in the entire world. And this is amazing. Of the 5,700 handwritten Greek manuscripts, which is over 3 million handwritten pages of scripture, there's only 1,500 to 2,000 viable and meaningful errors. That's it. Whoa! That paints a way different picture than the skeptic who just says you got 400,000 errors. Do you know what those errors are? So what are those errors then? The the 1,500 to 2,000 errors. Two of the most common of these errors will show you even how insignificant these errors are. And actually why having 5,700 manuscripts is to our advantage. You see, there's a difficulty in the Greek language that has to do with the endings of words. There are similar endings between different words. So, so what would happen is, as a scribe is copying a manuscript, okay, as he's looking back and forth at his manuscript and what he's copying, going back and forth, he may think he has already written a word because he sees the ending of the word when, in fact, he's just skipped a few words because in the same sentence there are similar endings of the word. Does that make sense? He's, he's sitting here and he's looking, he's copying from this copy to this when he's writing. He looks back. Well, every time you look back over, you lose your place. And if in the same sentence you have multiple words with the same ending, which is very, very incredibly common in the Greek language, as he looks back, he may read and think he's already written a word, so he skips a mini phrase. This happened often. Therefore, words in a sentence may be left out. This is called homoiteluton. You can see this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Anybody have a King James version on them? Anybody got a King James? All right, I'll read it to you. Anybody have a NASB? NASB? Good thing I came prepared for both. All right. You guys all have ESV? Oh, you dogs. boy, girls. All right. The King James Version in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says this. You ready? Listen. Listen carefully. Because, you, hey, you guys are now all about to practice sexual criticism. I want you to hear the difference. I want you to tell me what it is. King James Version, 1 John 3, verse 1 says this. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Now... The Nasby in the same verse, says this. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Anybody find the difference? Anybody hear the difference? The Nasby uses four words that King James doesn't. And such we are. boy, Jake Krause. And such we are. That we should be called children of God. King James moves on. Nazbi says, and such we are. You see, in Greek, this is important. The last three letters of the word called is the same last three letters you find in the phrase, and such we are. So what happened is during the transmission of the scripture is that early on, long before the King James Version, a scribe was writing, believed he had already written, and such we are, because it's the same ending as called, but he actually did not. So why then does the Nazbi have it in the King James Version, 
does not. This would be an example of one of the 1,500 to 2,000 variable uh, or viable or meaningful errors. Well, the King James Version was transmitted by looking at seven texts. It used seven sources, seven manuscripts to write the King James Version. None of these manuscripts contained the phrase, and such we are. However, when the Nazmis translated with over 100 texts, hundreds of years later, we are able to look at more than seven manuscripts. We trace back the error in what is called transmission, transmission genealogy. You can go back all the way to sources where people are writing their copies from, and we're able to find where the error actually happened, and that the majority of the reliable manuscripts from early on have the phrase, and such we are. So as the NASB is now with more material, more sources, it is able to find out that the correct verse, closer to the original, includes the phrase, and such we are. This was a common error that happened. A similar error is one called parablipsis, which is accidentally skipping lines during transmission of Scripture. So I'm reading, and I'm writing, and I'm skipping a line. In fact, if you look at these old... Uh, documents that are these Greek transcripts. It's amazing. There's no pauses. There's no big spaces between the lines. Every word and letter is connected. It's just a big run-on long thing. So the work, doing this work was difficult stuff. you got common men in homes doing it. And so parablepsis would happen when you would accidentally skip a line. And therefore we would be missing a sentence from some manuscript. But it's, you can understand how it's easy now when you have full manuscripts that contain it, multiple ones, when you look back and you go, oh, they missed this. It's a whole line. Parablepsis is a transmission error. Now, this leads us to our next defense of the reliability of the New Testament, and that is of textual criticism. Here's what textual criticism is. It's a method to determine by careful examination all the evidence given for the condition of a sacred text, the measure of its correspondence with or divergence from the exact language of the inspired penman, by all means available, it helps us to remove the errors which may have been gained or may have gained admission to it from whatever cause, and to restore the text to its pristine purity as it came from the hands of the original writers. So a a textual critic will take all of these manuscripts... We'll go down the genealogy of all these manuscripts. Where did it come from? It looked like this copy from this one. This has come from this one. We look at the most reliable sources. We look at the earliest sources. And textual criticism takes all of this and now can find patterns and mistakes. It can catch the missings of and such we are or the skipping of lines or the spelling errors and correct them. So we can actually get closer than ever before to the original manuscript. Now, skeptics shout, you can have no confidence in an original because you have so many copies of copies of copies of copies. But the reality is, is that we are actually able to better... Please don't miss this. We are able to better construct the original because of the mass amount of copies that we have. In other words, think about it this way. All right? People, uh, participation. If we only had one copy of the text, how many variables would there be? If there was only one copy of the text, how many? None. There would be no variance. 
There'd be no errors because what do you, what do you, if you just have the original, what do you, it's the original. There's no other copy. You're not comparing it to anything. But what if the text that we have was not the original? What if it came into existence 200 years later? But there's only one copy. There's not multiple manuscripts. There'd be no textual variance, but this comes into place 200 years later. How on earth can you have faith that that copy's reliable? You have nothing to compare it to. Do you understand what I'm saying? Though it has no variance, it has nothing to critique it against. How can that document be reliable at all? See, skeptics will say, you have too many documents. You have too many manuscripts to be able to tell if something was sincere. But would you rather have one? No! If you have multiple copies with minor variants based on spelling or sight errors, etc., etc., how much easier is it to compare and find the common threads and the common mistakes and then begin to see patterns to be able to recreate an original? I'll, I'll, I'll put it more clearly. I just gave you the example of 1 John 3.1. What if we only had one copy of 1 John and it was the copy that accidentally omitted the phrase, and such we are? We would never know. That that phrase was missing. In this case, it was better to have multiple copies. Now, obviously the best is to have the original. Duh, right? There is no such thing that exists on the earth, at least that we have found. There is no original. We We don't have it of any work of antiquity, people. But the New Testament is the most reliable piece of history and antiquity that we have. Textual criticism and years of finding manuscripts has allowed us to have a greater confidence in the Word of God. It shows common spelling errors and variants, but each time, each time, confirms and reaffirms the truth of these pages. Let me me give you an analogy so you can better understand the issue at hand. The problem is not that we have 99% accuracy in our text, but we're missing 1% of the text. In other words... It's not that we have a 1,000-piece puzzle, but we only have 990 pieces, so we're missing 10 pieces. That's not what is happening here. Our problem is a pretty cool problem. We have a 1,000-piece puzzle, but 1,010 pieces. So what we have to do is we have to figure out which 10 pieces don't fit in the puzzle. This is what textual criticism is. We have everything we need. We just need to now, according to what we have, in textual criticism and biblical scholarship and much prayer, be able to do our work to figure out the most accurate translation of the original. Having many manuscripts also allows for us to fight with scholarship against those who would say that people, this is a big common argument against the New Testament, the Word of God, say that people who have translated or copied the New Testament have corrupted it. This is a common cry of Mormons or Muslims. Both deny the deed of Christ. They both deny that Jesus is God. And they will say that Christians have actually corrupted the text. Some people say, um, there was a lady who talked about Christians have corrupted the text because the original documents, uh, the Bible supported reincarnation. And it was actually during Constantine's reign that eliminated that and eliminated uh, and, and proclaimed Christ to be God. Here's the problem with that. We have a document that was found called P72. It's one of the oldest Greek manuscripts found within 100 years of the original. 
So this is one of the 12 manuscripts found within the first 100 years. It reveals a text from 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude. Now, what's awesome about this is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 claims Jesus Christ to be our God and Savior. Boom. Right there. So it wasn't Constantine, by the way, who was the first to claim Jesus was actually God or was the Savior of the world. Because we have in a manuscript, in P72, within 100 years, Constantine doesn't happen for another, uh, until 387, I think, was when the, the council happened. Uh, check, fact me. Fact check. Check, fact me. Check, fact check me. 380s, thank you. So for those who would say that centuries later, Christians corrupted the text to claim Christ as God, they need to go read P72 to show that in the early 2nd century, a manuscript was found claiming the deity of Christ. Amen. This is the earliest papyrus manuscript, or one of the earliest with P52. I do want to note, and this is important, that there are two highly debated passages of the New Testament. Uh, I, there are others. Mark 16 has a passage of scripture that's debated as well. But I want to I talk about these. Because this is important for you to know. Especially if we're going to make a defense. The account of the adulterous woman who's brought before Jesus' feet. John seven fifty three through eight eleven. This is not found in any manuscript of John until the 5th century. We actually have full manuscripts of John before the 5th century. And all of our documentation of John before the 5th century does not contain the adulterous woman. Does not contain John 7, 53 through 8, 11. In fact, some of the later sources have this account in Luke, not John. It's a debated passage as well as 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 through 8. Or Mark 16, really verse 9 or 11 on. However, if you go read these passages... And when skeptics want to proclaim, I can prove John wrong, in the 5th century is the first time you see the adulterous woman. That doesn't prove John wrong. <laughs> that, that brings question to the adulterous woman. It's two different arguments. In other words, we should remember that to say 12 verses may be incorrect or may be questionable, questionable is not to say that the New Testament as a whole is not reliable. These are two separate discussions. In fact, none of these passages, which are fine in the 1,500 to 2,000 uh, viable and meaningful errors, none of these errors or variants or anything ruin or add any truth that is not already found in the whole of the New Testament. They don't add anything. They don't take away anything. It does not affect Christ as Savior. It doesn't affect Jesus Christ uh, by being saved by grace through faith in Christ. It doesn't affect Jesus as God. It does not affect the church. It doesn't affect the Christian and how he lives. It has nothing to do with these doctrines. So what's neat is though there may be a couple specific questionable passages as far as when they came into existence and things like that, these are not in any way opposing the whole of Scripture or bringing in the reliability of the whole of the New Testament. So I want to recap our reliability of the New Testament and leave you with one thought tonight. Number one, in the New Testament, we have the most reliable work of antiquity in the world. More manuscripts, earlier manuscripts, more eyewitnesses to the story, more affirmation from those within the first 100, 200 years. 
more than any other antiquity. If you're going to reject the New Testament as historically reliable, you must be consistent and then reject every other work of antiquity. Secondly, the many number of copies of the New Testament that we have actually helps. It does not hurt the reliability of the New Testament. Third, textual criticism has been able to identify correct errors in the transmission of the New Testament. I want to finish tonight discussing briefly the importance of the translations available to us of the Bible. Latin was the original language of the church after translated from, uh, into, from Greek into Latin. Although a few portions of the Bible were translated into Old English between the 7th and 11th centuries. In 1382, 1382 sorry, John Wycliffe translated the entire Bible into the English of his day. It was based on the Latin Vulgate, was copied by hand because the printing press had not yet been introduced. We're actually going to talk about John Wycliffe and William Tyndale and many others um, in the coming weeks. Uh, we're going to talk about a radical time of persecution in the history of the church. We're going to talk about the Roman Catholic Church and the persecution that broke out leading up to the Reformation, during the Reformation. That will be on October 31st. The next two weeks we'll be discussing the patristic period, but not for tonight. During the last century, however, and most recently, the last 50 years, many good, reliable, and readable translations of the Bible have been produced in English. Amen. But we are faced with a question today of which translation is best. Anybody ever wondered what translation should I read? Why are there so many? And, yeah, is it bad for me to read this? Is it, it seems like King James is... There's some people pretty passionate about it and say, I'm going to hell if I don't read it. You know, like, a, uh, is that true? Well, it's a relevant question for our topic today because we can now see how even recent findings of older manuscripts have allowed us to continue the work of textual criticism by comparing, right? And today we have manuscripts and we have textual criticism that has brought in translations that are more accurate than ever. Again, remember the King James Version, for example, in 1611 was based on how many texts? Anybody remember? Seven. Good work out of you. Seven texts. There are two ends of the spectrum today in English translations. One is called functionally equivalent translation or dynamic translation, okay? Those who translate this way seek to accurately convey the same meaning of the text, but is not so concerned with preserving the same number of words or equivalent grammatical constructions or even flow, okay? An example of this type of translation would be the New Living Translation, on the other end of the spectrum would be the formally equivalent translation. This type is very concerned to preserve as much as possible the number of words and grammatical constructions from the original. An example of this would be the NASB or the ESV. NIV would find itself right in the middle. I, I actually have a chart of this that comes from a book called 40 Questions of How to Interpret the Bible. If you've got it for me, Heather, go ahead and put it up. It's not... Has it got the rainbow wheel? Uh, there we go. Okay. You've got dynamic equivalence, clarity of English expression, thought for thought, not necessarily word for word, formal equivalence, corresponds to the formula. The original language wants to be word for word as well as thought for thought. 
So over here, you've got the paraphrase, message, and the living Bible, CEV, TEV, NCV, New Living Translation, find yourself more towards that spectrum, REB, TNIV, NIV, Holman Christian, New Revised Standard, uh, RSV, ESV, New King James, King James, and the NASB all the way over here. This allows you to type of, to see the types of translations that we have and how those who translated these translations uh, approached approached it. Are you looking for thought for thought, not really caring for the word for word thing? Are you looking for the word for word and trying to keep it in context of the thought for thought? Now you can keep that up there. I want to show one thing. If you love to see paraphrase, paraphrases are not translations, okay? The living Bible and the message are not translations of the Bible. They are not to be studied or taken as accurate translations of the Bible. I mean no offense. I know probably some of you read the message. If you want to read the message on top of your quiet time or aside from deep study, uh, I would hope you're mature in your faith. Um, it's, it's not of the devil, it's not evil, I'm not calling it heretical, so to speak, because it's not a translation. If it claimed to be, we'd have a different discussion. But uh, it is sometimes dangerous. I, I, I personally, I'm giving my personal feeling, I personally believe that things like the message in the Living Bible can be dangerous because I believe that they lead to fluffy, man-made, self-centered doctrine in Christian living. It can very often be a me-centered approach. Right, Because the, the paraphrased authors want to make it sometimes more palatable to the reader. And, and it's not that they're trying to dumb down difficult things. They're just trying to make it more enjoyable to read. And it's hard to do that with some, with some truths. I mean, we read last week, Second Peter 3, 15 and 16. Peter says of Paul's letters, right? The wisdom received from God. And it's, some of it is tough to understand, as are the other scriptures. We shouldn't shy away from that. We shouldn't try to make that more palatable. So I, I do not recommend at all the message or the living Bible. The best translations are based on the most reliable ancient manuscripts of the Old and New Testaments. The King James Version, although excellent, right? And while it is very word for word, what you need to understand about this, about this graph, this graph shows you where it falls on how it approached the translation method. This is not a graph that says these are bad and it gets better as it goes over here. That, that's, that's, listen, you have to, yeah, the, it, that is not what it's saying. This is the approach to translation. And this is why the King James Version, which happens to be the second all the way in from the right side, is actually not highly recommended today. Believe it or not. It is not recommended because it is not based on the best manuscripts. And again, it was only based off of seven texts. It is indeed an excellent work. But it has been passed today by many modern translations in both readability and faithfulness to original manuscripts. The best translations today, as far as their approach to translation and their faithfulness to original manuscripts and readability, are the ESV the NASB, and the New King James. If you're getting a new Bible, or you're getting a study Bible, those are the three that I would recommend based on biblical scholarship and textual criticism. ESV, NASB, and New King James. Alright, next week, we're going to continue by looking at the beginning of the church and the apostles. We're going to spend the next two weeks looking at the patristic period. 
And what we're going to talk about as we've done the reliability, history and reliability of the Old Testament, the Apocrypha, history and reliability of the New Testament, now we're going to, say, we're going to see some amazing things. The next two weeks, we're going to walk through unbelievable persecution in the patristic period. Unbelievable persecution. And we're going to, go, we're going to show how God and his providence sovereignly protected and preserved the church and the word of God. That'll lead up to two weeks from tonight, three weeks from tonight, where it will be October 31st, and we will do the same thing in regards to the Reformation, and then we transition massively into preaching the rest of the year.